welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and our guest today is Dr. Tor Wager. He is the Diana L. Taylor Distinguished Professor in Neuroscience at Dartmouth College and the Director of Dartmouth's Cognitive and Effective Neuroscience Laboratory, the Dartmouth Brain Imaging Center, and the Dartmouth Center for Cognitive Neuroscience. His research centers on the neurophysiology of pain, emotions, stress, and empathy. Welcome. Thank hey, you. Hey, or welcome to the podcast. So I'm going to introduce you um, a little bit. I'm going to, I don't know Tor super well, but I know him hard enough to give him a little bit of a hard time. Is that okay, Tor? <laughs> of course. I love it. So just visualize that um, I have this huge dog in my hand that's pretty wild and running around. And so every time I ask Tor a question, we don't, he is so versed in his field that he goes off into orbit in every sentence. He's really, really smart about this thing. So what we like about Tor so much is that he's able to integrate psychology, neuroscience, the autonomic nervous system, the body's physiology into a whole piece of a situation. So our challenge, we like to harvest his brain, but we have a hard time understanding him sometimes. So I'm holding on to this leash toward to try to keep you into our world. <laughs> so yeah, bring me back really, in. <laughs> he just explained um, something that I find fascinating. He started as a psychologist, right? Mm -hmm. yes. And then you were a music major, which I don't think the world knows that. That's right, music composition. <laughs> and his, but his capacity to look at the MRI scans, the research, and the math is just stunning. And he took neuroscience training, but I've also heard that math and music are very related in that part of the brain. And what I think that explains a couple of things about your contribution to our chronic pain role is that creativity that probably comes with music. I'm guessing that's a big factor in how you think. Is that a fair statement? I think so. I think it's, uh, you know, maybe it's uh, ignorance, you know, not knowing what I don't know, so that I'm willing to... Uh, Put something out there and go for it. I think that's a big part of it, right? And Tor doesn't like this when I say this, but he really is one of the most brilliant neuroscientists in the world. So I'll just get that out there. So we're done with that. Okay. <laughs> Too kind. All right. Done. All right. So what we um, are asking Tor today, and this is something I'm learning a lot of, um, is that the body and brain simply work as a unit. We have, I don't particularly like the word mind-body syndrome anymore because it implies there's a separation. And the thing that I'm finding fascinating, again, I'm a rookie neuroscientist, if even you could call me a neuroscientist, but I mean, the brain is a physiological structure. And so I guess my first question to you from neuros, in, in again, Tor's offers contributions in neuroanatomy, but also contributions about the body in general. Can you explain to the audience what a functional MRI scan is? What are the things we can find from a functional MRI scan? Yeah, absolutely. Um, functional MRI is it um, uses the magnetic resonance imaging MRI scanner that you'd find in many hospitals, um, any, any hospital really at this point. Uh, and it uses um, magnetic resonance principles to generate an image of the brain, of, in fact, multiple images of, of different types. So the idea is that there's a strong magnetic field that's always on and it lines up a small fraction of the uh, protons in the water molecules, and they're, they're spinning. And then it uses essentially application of radio frequency energy to tip those spins over, and then they start releasing energy. 
uh, when they when they relax back to their state aligning with the magnetic field. So at the end of the day, there's this magic of tomography, which earned a couple of people Nobel prizes for how you take that signal and reconstruct a three-dimensional image of the brain. Uh, and so you can do that and you can see the gray matter, the white matter, that's the axons. You can see the, the fluid spaces and uh, with you know increasing levels of, of detail. But you can also do more than that, which is now you can generate uh, you know, 10 or 12 or more different kinds of images. So functional MRI is a different kind of image with the same hardware. And that gives us a picture of bit by bit, bit by bit, uh, what's happening in terms of signals related to blood flow and oxygen usage. So what happens when neurons get activated in local bits of the brain? And that generates about 300,000 pieces of information about local brain activity every second. And that's what we have. You see that again? 300,000 a second? Yeah, about 300,000 pieces of information about local brain activity every second. And so you can think of it as this, you know, three-dimensional waterbed with waves everywhere of activity, ripples, you know, crossing the brain back and forth. And particular patterns in those, uh, those waves are related to when, you know, our, our feelings of pain, our um, sense of ourself, our performance of simple tasks, you know, when you're holding something in memory or when you're orchestrating a finger movement, uh, different patterns, right? Accomplish that, um, all those different things. Right, so we can measure, we can measure the brain in safety, when it's under threat, when it's under mental threat versus physical threat. And you've defined that there's nine different types of networks in the brain, is that correct? Or is there more than that? Well, there's many, there, there really are kind of an arbitrary number of networks. There's 80 billion neurons. And uh, when people do functional imaging, it was pretty recent in the last 10 years or so that they discovered that when you're just lying there at rest, your brain's not simply quiet, it's oscillating and it's doing things and it oscillates together in these broad patterns. And th those became known as these networks. So it's sort of a matter of convenience to carve them up into seven or nine or 20 or a hundred different networks. But, um, but those are really just you know, not even scratching the, the surface of, of the organization of the brain systems that underlie that. Uh, and so, so the number, there's no fixed number, but you know, the, the, the better our techniques get and the more data we have, then the more fine-grained our resolution can be. So in other words, different regions of the brain get activated based on different types of sensory input. So for instance, if you step on a tack, a certain part of the brain will predict, predictably light up, correct? Yep, absolutely. Okay, it's called the nociceptive system. In other words, we need pain to protect us. So it's called nociceptive pain. So too bright, too loud, too bitter, all those light up different parts of the brain. So our protective pain system is called nociceptive pain. So we need pain to survive, it's necessary. But chronic pain, I'm gonna say something that I think is very simplistic and you can correct me on this, is that um, chronic pain is not very useful. And it's like the, the pain reaction in the brain has become disconnected from the environment. Is that a fair statement? I do think it's a fair statement. Okay. Yeah. So again, as I sit here in the chair, I'm automatically sh shifting in order to avoid pressure sores. I'm not staring at that bright light. And the nociceptive system, which is news to me, by the way, I thought if you felt pain, that there was nociceptive pain. What I've learned again from the neuroscience stuff is that 
your nociceptive system keeps you in a range of behaviors that is not painful. It's all automatic. So, you know, I, I again, I don't touch a hot stove automatically, and the nociceptive system is what prevents me from touching that stove. Now, if I touch the stove, of course, there's nociceptive pain, but then when you feel the discomfort, you've actually exceeded the limits of the nociceptive system. Is that a fair statement? Um, yeah, and I think it does, it, 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 you know, keeps us safe, but it also is a teacher. Correct. So when you activate that pain system, that teaches you not to touch that stove again. Right. And that's where some of the problems lie. I think when you start, um, your brain is, starts to say, oh, I better not do all of these different things again. I better not go out again. I better not uh, play tennis again. I better not move this way again. Right. So can you, from your perspective, um, give me your concept of chronic pain, how it's different than the acute nociceptive pain? I think it's, a, it's a, an evolving mystery how it's similar and different. So I do think that for some people, some of the time, uh, chronic pain is persistent activation of that same pain system. Okay. Um, so you can't explain away all pain as, as something totally different, but um, there's at least two other pieces. And those pieces are probably really important. So when you have chronic pain, you can end up with um, sensitization of that system. So even at the, the peripheral level and at the spinal cord level and in the thalamus, for example, these re, sort of relay centers that carry information up to other brain areas, you end up with um, cells that, that didn't fire to painful things before and they start firing um, to painful, or they, sorry, they fired only to painful things before and they start firing to non-painful touch or they start firing spontaneously. So that's, that's part of the story um, is, is sensitization. And another part of the story is avoidance. So I talked about the, the nociceptive pain system is a teacher and our brain is constantly learning. Uh, uh, we learn, you know, there's reward learning. We learn what to pursue, what we like, and that shapes us unconsciously. It shapes our behavior unconsciously. Well, we also learn what to avoid, right? And that's the, that's the other side of it. And so um, those systems that are responsible for taking the readout of the nociceptive pain system and determining then, okay, what do I do with that? Do I link that to the place I was, the movements I made? Um, and then do I start to generate a signal that says, nope, I'm gonna avoid that in advance. That's a different system. So let's call that your, call that your, your reward and punishment learning system. So the theme of chronic pain is that, I'm gonna say this maybe overstating the case, but there's really no survival benefit from having chronic pain. Is that a fair statement? Um, as, as far as we know, uh, I, I mean, I, I, you, should I, go to I, I you should go into politics, by the way, but okay. I should have, you can ask the same question about depression. So right. There's no survival benefit to depression, right? It doesn't seem to confer an obvious evolutionary advantage. But uh, on the other hand, the idea is that depression, uh, along with things like uh, uh, panic or fears and even chronic pain might be adaptations in the longer sense. I think of it like this. I think of it as your brain is constantly trying to make this decision as to how do I keep safe? What do I do to avoid the, the bad stuff and pursue the good stuff? And um, in chronic pain, the decision is tipped towards um, being vigilant for and sensitive to lots of things in the body that might be injurious. 
So it's just a, a decision boundary that's tipped, you know, in, in depression, um, it might be that there's, there's again, a decision that's made by the brain that says, do I get out there and like, am I, am I flush with resources? Do I get out there and give it my all and put myself out there and take risks? Or do I withdraw, defend, protect? And depression can be thought of as that kind of response. And chronic pain goes with depression. And that also can be this withdraw, defend, protect kind of response. Okay. No, I, I like that answer. So in general, but though the chronic pain is lost, it's not connected to the actual sensory input at that moment, correct? It, it's, I mean, I, I, I know yeah, it becomes disconnected from the immediate sensory input. Right. I mean, I know it can be the ongoing, you know, trauma or ongoing infection sure. can obviously cause right. pain chronic, but at a certain point, you point out the brain is sensitized, and we also know that the brain also becomes memorized at some point, that the brain can sort of memorize or get sensitized on a pretty permanent level. Is that correct? Um, it, it can. You know, I, I think the, the brain is um, receiving all kinds of signals from the body all the time, and it's learning what's, which of those are, are pain, which ones are those are threatening and should be painful, treated as pain, which ones are safe and should be treated as normal. So I'm going to pretend you're my doctor now, Dr. Wager. Well, I know you're a doctor, but um, <laughs> I'm a very orthopedic surgeon. And so I have degenerative disc disease, which we both know is simply normally aging spines. But um, um, so you've just told me that disc degeneration is normal. It's not a source of pain. So we, quote, can't find anything wrong. So Dr. Wager, are you trying to tell me that the pain's in my head? Um. I am telling you that the pain is in your brain. Okay. Okay. And it's, it's real pain and it's not your fault. And, you know, saying, saying it's all in your head is, is almost like saying, I don't believe you. And that's exactly the wrong. Correct. Answer, right. I do right. believe you. The pain is, is real. Uh, and it's just that it's not caused by that degeneration. So yeah. when you do a functional MRI scan in that situation where you have ongoing pain, when you do MRI scans or these functional MRI scans on people's brains, you find a lot of activity, correct? Right. So let's just take, um, I've been told again, I'm embarrassed to even use neuroscience terminology in your presence, but I'm told that um, the nociceptive centers in the brain, this is a Hashmi paper that between six to 12 months with chronic back pain, that the pain goes from the nociceptive center or the anatomic center to the emotional center between six to 12 months, which is much more diffuse. So what I've said is that you have the same pain, but a different driver. Um, is that a correct assumption or is that not quite right? Well, I don't, I don't think we know yet. So, so that same, in the Hashmi paper you're talking about, that, that same system, which they called the emotion system, right. because it looks like a map of emotions, broadly speaking, from, from a tool we developed called neurosynth.org. Um, that, that system is doing a lot of things for you, but that system is your reward and punishment avoidance learning system okay. as well. So another way to interpret that is that when pain becomes chronic, you shift from acute to chronic. And in that study, in that sample of chronic back pain patients, then there's a shift from uh, immediate nociception and pain right now being important, the important factor, to um, the avoidance 
an interpretation of symptoms as as threatening, which is the driving factor. And, and that avoidance behavior creates its own specific or own characteristic patterns of brain activity, correct? When you're in avoidance behavior, that's you're, you have a sensitized nervous system. You're starting to yeah. avoid more than you really need to avoid to avoid the pain, correct? Yeah, and the, the signals, one of the important areas for the signals seems to be the medial prefrontal cortex. So that's the emotion area from the, right. the Hashmi paper. And it's the third eye, right? You know, behind your forehead here. And, and that's the one where it seems to encode the expected value of pain when you move. I'm sorry, can you say one of the things that it does. It, it, it encodes the expected pain when you move. So that's part of the system that says, if I do this, if I make this choice, then I'm going to experience a lot of pain and therefore I shouldn't do it ahead of time. So it's, it's the expectation system. So the expectation of pain can actually cause pain. Did I hear that correctly? Well, it seems like that's, that's the case in those studies. That okay. what's, what's tracking the, the pain in, in some of those studies uh, is the expectation signal. Um, right. That's also the same system that is predicting the transition to chronic back pain in some studies too. So if you have, and that's another Apkarian lab study, if you have strong connectivity in that system, then you end up um, becoming a chronic pain patient. And you've done a lot of work correlating neuroimaging with the autonomic nervous system also, correct? We have, yeah. So we're going to go into a lot of detail today because we don't have time, but um, can you just, or like to do in the second podcast is really talk about you know, the role of physiology and harnessing that energy, what we call the placebo effect. Then you were part of a paper called PRT, um, reprocessing therapy. So I'd like to do that in the second podcast, but I'd just like to leave the audience today with the idea that um, the, the brain's a physiological organism. And when you're in a constant real perceived threat, you have an inflammatory, inflammatory response that actually also includes the nervous system. Is that right? That's right. And the way I think about it, the brain is trying to make a decision, like I said, about what's threatening and what's safe. And when you're under threat, the same system that's helping you decide that that's threatening, so it's the expectation system, um, is going to make you avoid stuff. And it's also going to drive your physiology in ways that uh, that create an adaptive response. So everyone knows the, the fight or flight response, right? That is an expected damage, expected pain. Correct. And then your body responds to prepare you to respond to that threat. And so the same systems in your brain that are the avoidance systems are also among those that, that drive your autonomic nervous system. And when that happens persistently, then you have chronic stress. And then when you're under chronic threat or even acute threat, but let's talk about chronic threat for a second, that when you're anxious and frustrated, your body's inflamed and you, I'm told that at a certain affinity or certain level, the cytokines actually cause the blood flow to shift from the neocortex or the thinking centers down to a different part of the brain. Do I have that perception right? Yeah, That's you know, when, you're, when you're angry and frustrated, yeah. we behave more in a survival mode than we do in a thinking mode. Right. Is there some physiological explanations for that? So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, um, that certainly one of the ideas that's been out there is, is that you shift from a sort of cortical reflective mode to a subcortical 
brainstem reactive threat mode. Right. You know, uh, I, so I, I think there's some value to that. Um, and something like that might, might certainly be happening. Now, nobody's ever put anybody in the scanner and made them really go into a rage, right? You can't, you can't do it. So there's, it's not there's totally plenty, clear. There's plenty, there's plenty of surgeons you're right? to work on. Yeah. So our, our cerebral cortex might also be really important for generating that sense of anger and so forth. So, so I don't want to, you know, it's, it's possible that yes, you, you know, the cortex is the human part and then the, the, the brainstem is the reptilian, you know, reactive part. Um, and you, you sort of withdraw from the human part and you live in this, this animal, you know, reactive rage part. So that's certainly out there, you know, but, but I think there's more, we have a lot to learn, right? I, I think that the cortex itself uh, constructs those experiences of emotion, constructs the sense of rage and the sense of stress and the sense of anger, which you may or may not be aware of or, or acknowledge, right? So, right. so basically I'm saying, I don't think neurologically speaking, we have all the answers yet. Yeah, and I do think, I mean, I don't know, I think mostly for patient understanding and also mine that, I mean, the human body is so complex. We said there's 80 billion nerve cells and I understand there's each neurons connected to something like 10,000 of the neurons somehow. I mean, it's a crazy complex system. So we know really very little compared to what actually is. So I'm hyper aware when I make sort of concrete statements, we're trying to take an incredibly complex system and just get the slightest handle of what it might mean to us on a day-to-day -day basis. But I agree, it's really, really complicated. Um, Tor, any concepts to the audience as, as a closing remarks as far as what you would like to tell the world about just what you know about chronic pain that we're now finding this a solvable problem which is incredibly exciting to a lot of us what do you i mean you've seen a lot you've been in, how long you've been in practice or how long you've been in medicine clinical medicine like this or your research oh, gosh. um almost 20 years okay and you've seen a lot of changes huge amount particularly the last five years any idea what you like to leave the audience with, where we come, where we're going. What are some of your general thoughts on that? Well, one idea um, is the, the importance of what you believe about the causes of your pain and what you believe about the possibility for improvement. And these are really about guesses about the future. Right. So, you know, if if you think that your pain is caused by local tissue damage and that every time it hurts, that's a sign that your body is being damaged. Of course, you're going to be afraid of it. It's inevitable. Right. It right. is threatening to you. Right. And if you're threatened, then, of course, you're going to attend and you're going to be vigilant for that thing that is threatening. And if you're vigilant, then your brain will learn to amplify that. Okay. And so the, 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 the fear itself and the belief itself, right, that, that pain is a sign of damage is part of the problem with chronic pain. I think it's a big part of the problem. Right. And so realizing that, interestingly, you know, can be a cure because if you can change that mindset and, and realize that that may not be the case, then that opens the path to unwinding the spiral of, of pain and desensitize right. it. So I think that's my biggest hope right now for, for helping people with chronic pain is helping people realize for themselves that they can unwind that spiral. Got it. 
No, it's a wonderful final thought. So Tor, thank you very much. Um, any resources that um, I know you're not in clinical practice right now, and um, you you work at Dartmouth, correct? Do you have resources within your department that might be, or your system that you recommend, or are you just sort of more in the research mode? You know, I, I it depends on, I, I recommend different things for, um, for, for patients and for people who are curious about the science. Um, but for those who are interested in, in the science and the, the papers on this, I recommend uh, canlab.science. That's my lab, C-A-N-L-A-B.science in a web browser. And then that has links to lots of papers about um, brain body processes and, uh, and so forth. So it's, uh, yeah. I'll show you, it was C-A-N lab. Mm -hmm. What does that stand for? Cognitive and Affective Neuroscience Lab, <laughs> C-A-N-L-A-B. I knew that wasn't going to be a simple answer. I'm excited. I didn't realize that was there. I mean, I would strongly encourage you to take a look at this because his work is so cutting edge. Um, it's really just wonderful. So, Tor, thank you very much. And we'll talk to you in a few minutes. Thank you, David. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Tor Weger, for being on the program today and for sharing his insights into the neurophysiology of pain. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.backincontrol.com. Thanks for listening today, and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.